PostgreSQL is the fourth fastest growing database in the market. First one is obviously Oracle. Second one is MySQL. And the third one is Microsoft SQL. But the only one that's gaining market share is actually PostgreSQL because of the engineering prowess behind it. One of the advantages to PostgreSQL is that they're not perfect, obviously, but one of the mindsets is do it correctly. Instead of do it fast or get it done or you know cut this corner, it's we do it correctly first. And so when we add features to this, they're very well thought out and you have a brain trust that is unmatched by anybody except maybe Oracle. And it's available for free. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mains. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where the most important things we make in life are connections we make with others. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Well, last week I had the privilege of making lots of connections with other SaaS founders. Spent time with about 500 SaaS founders and CEOs from around the world, hanging out in Austin, Texas. Many of them were bootstrap founders building amazing things and sharing what they learned along the journey. It was inspiring. The ingenuity, the creativity, and profitable business models. It's not all about revenue. Profit is uh, an important component of that, right? We just had a great, great time. Well, this week, I am making those connections again at the Saster Annual Conference out in San Francisco with about 10,000 other people collaborating, networking, and learning. If you're around the conference, definitely connect with me, drop me a message, and say hello. I really do think that connection is one of the most important things that we make in life. You know, connections have been absolutely life-changing for me, both personally and professionally. And I try to pay that forward as much as possible. So if you're around, let's connect. Well, in last week's episode, we talked with Sarah Well, a critical care trauma nurse turned SaaS founder and CEO of Dropstat. She's creating great patient experiences for hospital systems by making sure that hospitals have the right nursing staff at the right time and at the best rate. Sarah has a great story, tremendous product, and fantastic insight about succeeding in the tech space. So if you missed it, go back and give that episode a listen. Sarah is absolutely fantastic. Well, my guest this week is Joshua Drake, or JD as everyone calls him. JD is founder and president of Command Prompt, which is the oldest Postgres company, and he's also host of the podcast More Than a Refresh. JD lives life way outside the traditional corporate norm, traveling the country with his family as a digital nomad on a converted school bus. Isn't that awesome? The bus is named Intrepidus. He's a fascinating tech founder who lives life to the fullest and encourages the rest of us to live a fearless life, or Intrepidus Fida. Give it up for Joshua Drake, JD. And welcome to the podcast, JD. It's great to see you. Hey, great to see you too, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Well, let's start with a little bit about your background and command prompt 
And uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are today. Well, I don't like to use the term self-made because I think, I mean, I had a lot of mentors and a lot of helpers, but I was 17 years old. I was living on my own. I hadn't finished high school and I had to figure out how to provide. Uh, and uh, my entire IT career actually started at a bookstore. It's called Powell's Books. Sure. They actually, they have the largest freestanding bookstore in the world in downtown Portland. But I actually worked at one of their outlet stores in Beaverton, Oregon. And I ended up just somehow dealing with their computer book section. And, and to give people an idea, this was back in 91, I want to say. I mean, it was a long time ago. And at one point, the, the economy was starting to slow down. And so that other people wouldn't be laid off, I transferred to their technical bookstore. And over the period of 11 months, I ended up, or a little over 11 months, I ended up helping them you know, reprovision their Nobel network, created their Linux section. This is when Linux was just a, a beginning thing. This is when books on the internet were all pictures because people couldn't like even grasp what the internet was yet. Sure. Uh, and one day I sold a book to a gentleman by the name of Steve Wiki, and he hired me right there to be a bench tech building computers, which I had never really done before. In fact, blew up my first couple by putting the CPUs <laughs> in the wrong way. But it all started back then. In fact, Spire Tech to this day, because of my initiation, is still the largestly privately owned internet service provider in Portland. It wasn't my company, but I basically founded that business center for them. And that was during the time when the internet was coming up, right? It was before the dot-com boom. It was in the 90s where if you were on, people were just learning things like, oh, there's this thing called Usenet. And the World Wide Web existed, but things like Archie and Gopher were more popular. And you still had services like Prodigy, Delphi, AOL.com, those types of things. And since I was so young and it was a, during an economic boom, it was one of these every six months, someone would come along and hire me to do something else, hire me to do something else. Uh, and I basically self-taught myself through all that. And then not to go too deep into this, but the final straw, I guess, was my ex-wife, lovely lady, uh, looked at me and said, I need my husband to have a real job, meaning she wanted me to sit still, be in an office. That's about as far from you as possible. It really is. It lasted nine months. I got fired. I started another gig with some friends. I lasted there for a year, got fired, started Command Prompt, have not been fired from Command Prompt. <laughs> and that was, we, and we, we started in 97, but we incorporated in uh, 2000. Okay. So, and Command Prompt, I mean, we can go on and on, but we basically, what we do is we're experts in Postgres and Postgres related technologies. We've been doing it since 1997. We provide 24-7 support, expert consulting. It's boutique. We're only about 20 people. So we specialize in, you know, we have a lot of health tech customers, a lot of fintech customers that come to us to solve specific problems within their architecture using or optimizing for PostgreSQL. And so for those that don't know, tell me a little bit more about Postgres. How does it work? How does it solve those problems? So Postgres, most people will have heard of either Microsoft SQL Server or Oracle, okay, or MySQL would be a right. popular one. PostgreSQL is an open source PostgreSQL database. It is under a very liberal license, meaning that you can close source it. So you don't, unlike say MySQL, if you change MySQL, you have to give those changes back. 
With PostgreSQL, you don't have to, you should, but you don't have to give those changes back. And that's why the foundation for Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL, RD, Amazon RDS PostgreSQL, Microsoft Azure PostgreSQL, those have, they've all enhanced those to provide services to clients. And in fact, you can't even buy something from Amazon without using PostgreSQL. It's just their version. And the problems that it solves are it provides you a no license fee enterprise class 24-7 ready SQL database that allows you to do anything that an SQL database would do. And generally speaking, that's everything that drives e-commerce in this world. And most people probably don't know that that is the underlying technology behind the, the data structure for a lot of those companies. No, that is exactly right. I mean, PostgreSQL is the fourth fastest growing database in the market. First one is obviously Oracle. Second one is MySQL. And the third one is Microsoft SQL. But the only one that's gaining market share is actually PostgreSQL because of the engineering prowess behind it. One of the advantages to PostgreSQL is that they're not perfect, obviously, but one of the mindsets is do it correctly. Instead of do it fast or get it done or you know cut this corner, it's we do it correctly first. And so when we add features to this, they're very well thought out and you have a brain trust that is unmatched by anybody except maybe Oracle. And it's available for free. That's pretty amazing. No, we really enjoy it. I mean, like I said, I mean, I, back in 2001, I actually uh, co-authored the O'Reilly book on PostgreSQL, right? It, it's just something that I was lucky enough to spot a good technology at the time way back. So it's 22, 23 years ago. In fact, in the beginning, I was using what's called Postgres 95, which predates the current project. And basically through the growth of Postgres QL, since we've been around since the beginning of Postgres QL, we have grown with Postgres QL. So we didn't have to do things like take investment. You know, we just continue to grow with it. That makes a lot of sense. So how did you choose it? I mean, how do you spot trends like that? You're talking, you know, 20 plus years where technology is changing so fast. How did you, did you choose it your, like intentionally or is it something that you, you know, just were able to, to lock onto? Like fell into? Right. You know, it's an interesting question. I actually had this conversation with Bruce Momjin a few years ago. And Bruce Momjin is one of the core developers of PostgreSQL.org. And it's because one of the things that I do for volunteer work is help execute and run the largest PostgreSQL conference series. It's a nonprofit 501c3 in the world. And there was a lot of pushback from the community at the time because the community tends to be a little academic and they didn't understand the role of the ecosystem in this. And we put in, you know, Bruce and I were kind of arguing, not fighting, arguing, having good discourse back and forth. What's a good direction to take? Why is this good? Why is this bad? And coming to kind of consensus on how to move forward in certain things. And at the end of the conference, he looked at me and said, you're one of those people that sees things 10 years ahead. And he's right. So you have all kinds of people in this world. You have the people that are very good at, I do what is right here, right in front of me, right? You have people that are always dealing with what's back here. They don't even realize it. Right. And then you've got people that are way out, like an Elon Musk. I'm not on that realm. I wish I was. I'd have a lot more money. (laughs) But then you have the people that really can see, say, five to 10 years ahead. And I've always been very good at that. I mean, even with Linux, uh, you know, way back when I was working with that ISP building PCs, 
one of the first things I noticed is that there were a lot of people talking about Linux, but there were no professionals providing services for Linux. So I was selling 486 DX266s with 16 meg of RAM and a one, one gig, one gig SD drive for five grand a pop. Wow. Right. And we were shipping one a week. Right. And our cost on it was like 2,300 bucks or something like that. And we were doing one a week. Right. So that's kind of how it happened. I didn't, when I got into Postgres 95, I needed money. So I was using Perl and then later PHP with Postgres 95 because it was a database that worked. And it also made sense on like, well, actually it wasn't even MySQL at the time. It was MSQL at the time. Uh, I didn't like how that operated. Uh, And then as things continued on and we got the book deal for Postgres QL, I just started to notice the trends. I watched that there was a company called Great Bridge that uh, took in about $15 million in VC. They lasted 11 months because their business plan was totally bogus. But you could just see the writing on the wall if you were paying attention. If you educate yourself and you pay attention, it's not hard to see certain trends, right? The internet was taking off. That means that e-commerce was going to take off. E-commerce requires a database. SQL is the standard of a database. PostgreSQL is free. It's logical. It makes sense, right? You just kind of follow that pattern. That's good. So it sounds like you're more on the technical side. How do you balance that with running a company and, and operations and sales and marketing and all the other functions of a business? Well, now I have people that do that for me. Right. But at the time I am lucky and that I am able to articulate ideas to say a C-level suite as well as the engineers. That's actually the role I've always played. Even when I had jobs, quote unquote, I ended up being the guy, no matter how technical it was, that would be able to take whatever the tech was, the engineer was saying and translate that into something the manager could understand and vice versa. In terms of sales and marketing, for command prompt, we've never actually had salespeople. I mean, we did, I think, once. Didn't work out. We've always used word of mouth. Uh, We believe in the farming method, which means that our profit is the result of our good work and our hard work versus our profit being the result of a sale, which is more of a hunting method. It's not that it's better or worse. It's just how we do things. And so through... For example, one of the things I made sure of is that when we co-authored the book for PostgreSQL, that that book was available online for free. So when people were looking for PostgreSQL, they would find us. Same with running the conference. You know, when we're running the conferences, it is via a nonprofit. We want everybody to be able to be educated and be able to experience PostgreSQL. But the end result is who are they talking to? They're talking to me. So through our good works and our volunteer and our charity work and those types of things through the nonprofit, our reputation gets out. And then someone says, hey, have you heard of Postgres? And someone else says, yeah, you know what? I just went to this conference or I just read this book or, you know, I heard, you know, I, we don't have to worry about advertising per se. So the, the business comes into us. And luckily, and most businesses will experience this that have any modicum of success. Over time, your reputation tends to precede you. And so, for example, we'll get customers, and this actually literally just happened this January. We had a customer contact me personally on Facebook. They were down. They were in a world of hurt. They run a retail establishment with over 10,000 remote units. And they said, JD, I have known about you for a decade. I've always meant to contact you, but we've been busy. And now I need you. Wow. And luckily, I was able to say, well, 
thankfully, you don't need me. I have a whole staff. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't have to be the person doing the cleanup work anymore. So how do you balance software and services? So if you look at, uh, you know, SQL being the, the back end and Postgres being there, you know, you could have built something on top of that. You chose to go the services route and, and really providing services around that to clients. So what's the thought process between those two? That actually wasn't the original intent. Uh, when we started Command Prompt as a PostgreSQL company, pretty much as 2000, year 2000, we had written our own web language called LXP that we sold. We had the first production class ODBC driver for PostgreSQL. We wrote the first replication engine that was production class for PostgreSQL. We even had a modified libpq driver that supported compression on the protocol for more, because back then, you know, if you had a hundred megabit connection, that was awesome, right? Right. Oh, so I got a hundred meg. Well, (laughs) I mean, a lot of people had 10 meg back then. So we had compression on the protocol. We had our own proprietary distribution. And that really lasted until about PostgreSQL version eight, uh, three or four, I think. And then the writing was on the wall because PostgreSQL started to work heavily toward having replication, having point in time recovery, having production class open source drivers. So I had a choice of either continuing to invest a lot of money and a lot of overhead to try and sell a widget, you know, a piece of software, or we could pivot to services and then be able to work with anybody using PostgreSQL. So by pivoting to services, it isn't a command prompt customer. It could be a VMware customer. It could be a credited customer. It doesn't matter because our job is to make you successful with PostgreSQL, not make you successful with command prompt PostgreSQL. Uh, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think some of the, the most successful companies, you know, even SaaS companies are SaaS plus. So they've added something else on there. And services is one of those things that, uh, that they do quite a bit. And, uh, you know, whether it's around their software or around, you know, something bigger than that. Sometimes, I mean, like if you look at an Amazon or something, I mean, they, I shouldn't say Amazon, I should say AWS. AWS is pretty much purely SaaS. Yes, they are. Now, unless you're someone like, say, Verizon, right? Other than that, they're farming that out to their partners. Right. And the partners deal with that. But just certainly there are others. I mean, if you take something like, you know, say an Xtuple, which has Xtuple Cloud, they're an ERP system. Certainly they provide, you know, customization services of the product and, you know, those types of things. And the reason I bring up Xtuple is because they run on Postgres. It's amazing how many businesses run on that. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, I don't think as many people really realize what that technology is behind it. Or how many people have even, maybe even never heard of it? Oh, no, I agree. I mean, it's a lot like Linux, right? Right. Most people have heard of Linux, but most people don't realize they run Linux. If you run a smart TV, you are likely running Linux. Right. If you have an Android phone, which 85% of the world has an Android phone, all Android is, yes, (laughs) all Android is, is a distribution of Linux. PostgreSQL is very much the same way. If you're running Informix, if you're running Veritas or Net, what is it, Net, Neteza, if you're running Enterprise DB, if you're running RDS Postgres, Aurora Postgres, if you just downloaded it and use it, I mean, even Apple used to ship it because they used to use it as part of their rendezvous slash bonjour services. HP used to ship it. I don't know if they still do. They might as part of a backup product. It's all over the place. I mean, like I said, you can't buy something from Amazon without using Postgres. Right. 
What's interesting in the, the beginning, hearing your story about uh, moving from one company to another and, and staying in one place. And, and I think businesses are really extensions of who we are. Yeah. And so, you know, as entrepreneurs, it has to fit, fit us personally. So I know you've got uh, Intrepidus Vita, Fearless Life Projects. So I'd love to hear a little more about that life and leadership initiative. Yeah. So Command Prompt, as we've been able to exercise our privilege a bit more, as we become more profitable, we decided to change the focus of Command Prompt. Instead of being a bunch of gray hairs, Birkenstocks, even though I obviously still have that. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. I wanted to help people more. And this kind of kind of launch padded out of running the conferences where I would get up and do you know the launch of the conference where you talk about logistics, when's lunch, what's the Wi-Fi password and things like that. And in 2019, I got up because our society as a whole was getting very divisive and politically oriented and siloed and people wouldn't talk to people because of this or that instead of having honest discourse. And the focus of Postgres Comp Silicon Valley 2019, the slogan was, come as you are. And the idea here is I'm not interested in your brochure because everybody's got a brochure, right? Your interview process how you present yourself to sell a product, how you present yourself to your wife or your partner or whatever, right? Everyone's got that brochure. What I'm interested in is allowing you to be what's inside the brochure. Isn't that great? Right. It is. The amount of people, when I gave this keynote, it was literally, you know, what are you afraid of? What are you really afraid of? Are you afraid of so-and-so is not going to like you? Well, so what? Are you afraid that because you like to build model airplanes, people will think you're a nerd? So what? And the example I gave was Intrepidus Vita, which is, and that is Latin for fearless life. And that is our inspiration project where we try to get people to let go of what's holding them back. And the way we do that the, primarily is that, although today, as you can see behind me, I'm in my kitchen, often there was a very good opportunity that had we done this in, say, October, the background would have been the South Rim of the Grand Canyon. Because we will travel around in a six-window, 23-foot school bus that we have converted into a motorhome, and we will work, and we will publish as we work so that people understand that they don't have to be tied to a chair, they don't have to be tied to their fears, that there are four, far more people out there that would love a real person to interact with than what Twitter or CNN or whatever wants you to think you should be. And because of that, we've made friends all over the United States. We have met truly amazing people from, we met a young couple, late 20s. And this actually was before we had the Intrepidus bus. We had a bus kid named Beatrice, which was a totally different thing. They were a young couple. They're full time in this 21 foot bus. She has an online blog that she makes just enough to pay for food. And he's a traveling musician and he works for tips. And a lot of people, Bill Maher is an example, would mock that. Like, isn't that what you're supposed to do like when you're retired? Right. You're supposed to work when you're young. But why? Exactly. It's just, Now, if you enjoy working, I do. You clearly do. I mean, good for you. But if you can make a living providing people with inspiration and joy, maybe it's gardening, maybe it's traveling musician, whatever – and you are not taking away from society itself, meaning you are contributing in society. Maybe not in the way a lot of people think you should, but you are, right? You're providing joy to people. You're not living off of, say, unemployment, right? You are self-sustaining financially. Then who cares? 
It's not hurting you. Why do you care what so-and-so is doing as long as it's not hurting you or other people? So let people be people instead of what government or CNN or, or whatever corporation in their culture tells you should be. Yeah, freedom of expression, fearless life. Exactly. That's great. So as you've done these buses, you've, you've done more than one. Yes. The first one was Beatrice. And actually, if we look at it from a historical perspective or what you know drives a person, everybody has, you know, as we expect, you'll understand this, as we get older, we start realizing all the things that were broken from our childhood that we never addressed, right? That kind of thing. Well, we had had a family, I don't want to say tragedy, but explosive moment. And uh, my partner and I were sitting on the couch and I looked at her and I'm like, we got to get out of here. We're sitting here just being depressed, being alone, you know, wallowing in our sorrow. And we could no longer backpack because I've got a bad ankle. Uh, and so it, those types of things didn't work. And we had bought this bus a few months previous because I could no longer backpack. And we went to camp. So instead of sitting at home, we just left. We grabbed our dogs, watered our plants and left. And we were out for almost a month traveling Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, just trying to get to heal and experience things. And that was almost five years ago. And it just kind of launched from there. And last year, uh, we decided to do a new bus, not new bus, but new to us bus, which is more what you would expect of a bus. It looks like a big school bus. It's just not a big school bus. Uh, and it's a little bigger. And the reason it was a little bigger is she wanted a bathroom. I don't think that's unreasonable. <laughs> so we added a bathroom kind of important at times. Yeah. And that one we took last fall, we were out for 13 weeks and we're planning to be out six months as of this fall. And because of that, we now have a new hobby. We have some friends that are actually in Papua New Guinea doing training in cultural education, things like first aid, things like that for tribes in Papua New Guinea. And they come back to raise money every few years. But they asked us to convert a bus for them so that when they come back, their kids have a place to sleep that they know, right? That's their bunk bed, their bookshelf, that kind of thing to provide some stability for the six months that they come back. So it kind of leaned into that. That's really nice. And any plans to build an electric or self-driving bus? Self-driving, probably not. <laughs> electric. So no, I don't have any plans for it. And really, I think that people need to realize that although EV is good, I'm absolutely 100% pro-environment. EV is not suited for everything yet. And school buses are one. Now, there are way, places where they do fit. You know, you can buy an electric school bus right now and it gets about 75 to 150 miles per charge. And that's awesome, right? Because you're literally, you're picking up the kids, you're dropping off at school. If you're going far enough, you can charge during the middle of the day until you pick up the kids and take them back home. Sure. That's perfect for a school bus. But that is not going to work for a cross-country trip. Right. It doesn't make sense sitting at the Grand Canyon uh, with a, a dead battery. Yeah, no. It's, I mean, and then people say, what about solar? Solar is right. good for, you know, batteries this big. Not batteries this big, right? <laughs> so I think we'll get there. But I also think that there's still other technologies on the way that are going to extend the life of internal combustion engines. I mean, for example, you know, biodiesel is a good example of something that doesn't pollute nearly as bad as normal diesel. But even more so, and this is something that Toyota has invested a lot in, and because of Toyota's investment, even China is starting to deploy it, which is hydrogen-based vehicles, because the emission of hydrogen is just water. 
but it can be used in an internal combustion engine. So you don't have to necessarily have, for example, the mining complexities of something like lithium. I guess in the future, what I'm saying is right now, our transportation is largely driven by unleaded or diesel. In the future, I think it will be largely driven by electric, solar for things like mass, or not solar, electric for mass transit, you know, the trains. But you're still going to see long haul, anything that's really going the long distance, it's going to be some type of diesel or some type of hydrogen. And you can see that today. I mean, even with all the estimates, if you look at the government estimates and the industry estimates, even by 2050, I think it is, only half the fleet will be electric if you incorporate everything. And But that's okay, right? It's just as long as we move in the right direction. Sure. And that's interesting, talking about the, the innovation. And let's pick that up and we'll talk about how you innovate when we come back after a quick word from this week's sponsor. Why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? And what can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Hey, check out my book, Small Fish, Big Pond, Building a World-Class Business that Swims Circles Around Competitors. This book delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning-fast results. Get your copy today at Small Fish Big Pond. Use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus audio and video content. All right, we're back on SASFUEL. My guest today is JD from Command Prompt. And so we're talking about uh, innovation. And so how do you innovate as an entrepreneur and how do you see innovation fitting into to your business? So the thing about entrepreneurism, which you know, of course, is that you have to have an idea right? And successful entrepreneurism understands that the idea has to solve a problem. A lot of people have an idea that doesn't solve a problem. And that's why they get $15 million, $20 million, $100 million. And then they either get acquired or they go away, right? Because they didn't actually solve a problem. Other ideas are ahead of their time. I don't know if you remember, but in the early 2000s, who I can't remember the name of the company. It was Peapod or something like that. That was essentially a DoorDash, right? Where you could call in and or order up on the website, and I want bring me a Starbucks latte and a bunch of tea. Boom, they show up, or they deliver groceries or whatever. That was big. We had a couple of those here in Dallas. The grocery delivery that was way ahead of their time, and they went out of business because they were way ahead of their time. So innovation, I think, comes around in, in cycles. Because there has to be an external element to drive the problem you're solving. Back in 2000, gas was cheap, right? People were tied to their cars. Netflix didn't exist. You have to have a moment where the technology or the innovation that you've come up with now solves the problem. It was an unfortunate moment for those companies, but the companies that we have now, like your Instacart, your DoorDash, your uh, Grubhub, it was the pandemic right? It's the pandemic that really accelerated their growth and the innovation of what they're doing because people now realize, wait a minute, I can sit on my couch, I can watch Netflix and my food will just appear. And then the, the pandemic, not only was it where well, the food will appear, liquor will appear. So why would I ever get off my couch? Right. Now that's another social <laughs> problem that we could certainly explore because that's a sure. very bad thing. But in innovation, if you start with what is a problem you're solving? 
there's always innovation to be had. And you, you see that with other companies in the industries now. You take someone like a Snowflake, which Snowflake is not an SQL database. They're a totally different technology. They're a cloud-based system. But they recognized that if you solve a particular set of problems, I don't have to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in hardware. I don't have to buy some enterprise class data warehouse. I can load up my data. I can transform my data, report on my data, and then dump my data and save money because all the hosting is happening with Snowflake. Now, of course, you have to be smart enough to turn off Snowflake when you're done reporting. Otherwise, it's actually more expensive than running in-house. Sure. But it was a problem that they solved. So when you're innovating, and actually, I want to pause for a second, not the podcast, but I want to pause it and step back from the thought because this is something that especially technical people tend to forget. Technical people, they like to latch on like a bulldog. They find something and they run with it and they don't understand the implications of running with it. And there's been so many social constructs and problems created by tech because they weren't actually innovating. They were being selfish with their thoughts. When you're selfish with your thoughts and you don't ask yourself, am I solving a problem? Is what I'm doing, can I do something that I, can I do this? Well, yes, can I do this? Okay, great. You can do this. Should you? That's the bigger question. Should you? Right? So find the problem you're going to solve. Ask if you should solve it. Because a lot of times the problem doesn't actually exist. And I'll give you a perfect example. AWS. They have not solved a single problem. All they've done is rebadge everything everybody was already doing in the 19 or in the 1900s, in the 90s and the early <laughs> right. 2000s, right? Uh, everything that you do with AWS today, I can do without AWS. Right. Right. And I'm not suggesting that AWS is bad. What they, I mean, they are clearly, they solved a convenience, let's say incident. I don't want to call it a problem because I think convenience in itself is a problem. That they solve, meaning that solving convenience actually creates problems versus solving problems. But that, I mean, when you look at it like that, that's how you have, that's where innovation comes from. When you look at it from one, am I solving a problem? Yes. Okay. Is it actually a problem that should be solved? Yes or no. And then if you say yes, and then you run with it, that's where the good ideas come from. And I'm talking about the rich ideas. There's plenty of rich ideas. I mean, because there's a lot of, I mean, one in five people in the world is a sucker. Okay. So there is plenty of rich ideas and that's an anecdotal estimate. I'm probably sure it's probably more like 65% out of a hundred. Right. <laughs> and it all depends on what we're talking about. Right. So for example, do not take me to home Depot. Right. Because I'll just, I don't know. I don't need this, but it would look good in my shop. Right. So I'm a sucker for home Depot. <laughs> All right. So we all have our That's case. a dangerous place to be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, innovating in the business, it's just about if you can identify a problem to solve and you can solve it in a way that is ethically good, you will innovate. And not only will you make money, but you'll make people's lives better. And so what has made you successful in that way? Luck. <laughs> I, I think that anybody that says, well, my education or my willingness to learn or the people, my advisors, those are all components. Certainly having a good mentor is very important. Being willing to listen to your mentors is very important. Being willing to educate yourself is very important. Being willing to fail is very important. 
but more than anything, you have to understand that life takes place as a series of luck. You were in the right place at the right time. You had the right skill and the talent to run with it. I make no bones about it. My upbringing, I didn't graduate high school. I didn't graduate college. I am self-taught, but I had a lot of mentors and advisors that believed in me, allowed me to fail, allowed me to recover from failure. And I was willing to work hard to get there. But all of that, Every piece of that, including the working hard. I mean, when I first started, 20 hours a day, right? I was a startup, had to pay the bills. You did everything you had to do. But it all started with the fact that I was in the right place at the right time. And I was able to recognize it. And that was luck. I wouldn't be able to do that today. I'm not going to find, if I was 20 today, that luck is over, right? That part of the market is over. I would have to be lucky in a different way in order to be where I am now. So what trends are you seeing in that different way that might be those things that somebody could latch onto now that would still be around in another 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Well, I think open source is probably the most obvious one. You know, open source has been around for quite a bit longer than 20 years, although that's actually when it was termed, it was around 2000, 1999, I think. There is always going to be a market for someone who can deploy technical services in a manner that the customer owns, right? A lot of people like to talk about the growth of the cloud and, you know, those types of things. But I think it was 20 or 2020 or 2021, the entire revenue stream for the cloud was only 4 trillion, I think it was. It was either 4 billion or 4, it's 4 trillion, I think. But the entire industry is something like 280 right? It's a ridiculous amount. Okay. And we'd have to double check those numbers because I'm pulling them from the back of my head, but it was something like that. And you have to recognize that there's a lot of industries that cannot go to the cloud. Right. Right. It's not a fit for everything. Not just a fit. I mean, legally, right? Not just technology, legally wise. So, but there was always going to be an opening for someone that says, yes, I can install Linux. Yes, I can take you paperless. Yes, I can give you privacy. You don't have to use Google Docs. There is only Office, which gives you Google Docs, but you can host it yourself. You don't have to put all your data into somebody else's data center. There will always be that industry. And there will always be the person that says, look, I don't deal with infrastructure anymore. I'm not going to install this for you. But you know what? RDS PostgreSQL is just PostgreSQL. So I can help you with PostgreSQL even though you are in the cloud right? The only differences between RDS, PostgreSQL, and PostgreSQL is basically your interface and some slight security differences because they're multi-tenant, right? So from those trends, I think there will always be a place for people to make money and be able to and actually provide for themselves. But I think that there's another part that's coming around that is going to change, kind of take us backwards in a forward way. And I'll give you a perfect- What is that? Well- I have a real life example right now. There is a general, I live on 10 acres. I have a 660 foot driveway to get to my house. Okay, so I walk like a 20th of a mile every time I go to my mailbox. (laughs) It had potholes because it's a gravel driveway. I found a guy on next door and said, I don't want to run a tractor. Will you come out and take care of this for me? For 400 bucks in three hours, my driveway no longer has potholes. Now you think to yourself, I'm like, Why would I want to do that? Well, hold on a minute. Think about this. This guy 
if he's worth, and, and I had to wait two weeks. That's how busy he is, right? All this guy does for his living, which is a very fair living, is run around and charge a hundred bucks an hour to drive his tractor. How many people out there, and if you don't believe me, look at where the, the employment crunch is right now. Everyone's having problems finding people. And you would think that wouldn't be the case, but because we were in the pandemic. But what happened was all the, let's say, less than happy jobs disappeared in the pandemic. And those people have moved on and realized they can make a better lives for themselves doing other things. Me personally, I'm at a point in my career, I love PostgreSQL. I love open source. I love talking about it. I love running the conferences. I love what I do. I am blessed in that. But on the other hand, I have enough people to where I can work three days a week and the other four, I could be running around on a tractor for a hundred bucks an hour. That's backwards, right? Because that's what you used to do in the twenties, right? Not for a hundred bucks an hour, but you used to do it on your homestead or your farm or whatever, but it's forwards because it's now coming back into an opportunity for people. Also, if you look at where I'm at, I'm in Western Washington. Homesteads are a thing here still, and they're growing. It's, we're not getting less homesteaders. We're getting more homesteaders, and they are making their living off of raising pork that is organic, free range, you know, all that kind of, you know, happy pigs. They're 100% happy pigs. You can go and pet them, and then six months later, they're bacon, which is awesome. Right, Because you know that that animal had a good life. That animal is not sitting on a feedlot being fed corn, which this is going to be a cattle feedlot. Cows aren't supposed to eat corn. They're not being fed leftover candy to bulk them up, which is what those cattle lots do to bulk them up. They are literally the natural incarnation of food. They had a good life. They then serviced us as being on top of the food chain, and it's healthier. Right. But a lot of people will tell you that's backwards. That's the old way. We should be mass producing food. It's more efficient. Those types of things. Grow well, it in that, a lab. Yeah. Grow it in a lab. Well, let me ask you something. <laughs> if we should be moving forward so fast with technology and growing things in a lab and grow and, you know, beyond burgers and things like that, why is it the Amish have less cancer than we do? Less heart disease, less valid diabetes, question for sure. Yeah. Less obesity. Well, it's not that the Amish don't use technology. They actually do. But they have a very simple lifestyle. One, live simply. And two, what you eat or is organic. Right? They're doing it the old school way. And they're outliving us. They're happier. They're not constantly inundated with what should I buy? What pills should I take to fix this problem? So I think that there, that is where there is an opportunity for a lot of people, especially people who aren't necessarily technical. You know, President Biden was once asked a question. It's like, what are you going to do as a lot of these industries go away? What, do you, what is your advice for those people? And he said, learn to code. Sure. Not everybody can learn to code. Right. Right. The, and especially, let's be honest, if you're 55 years old and you're not already technically oriented, you are not learning to code. You're going to have to figure out something else. And even if you did, somebody... Somewhere else, we'll do it for a whole lot less. Well, not only less, not just from, say, like an offshore perspective, which I think is what you were alluding to. Yes. But if I hire a 55-year-old person, everything is more expensive. Their wages because of their experience, their health insurance, their retirement, everything. And they're a brand new in coding person. Well, I can hire someone who's 28 
who frankly will be with me longer if I take care of them because I can invest in them and will be able to adapt with trends. But if you take that same person and you say, look, you're not going to make $150,000 a year doing whatever it is you're doing, period. But you know what? You have base techno or base skills in XYZ. Here's an example. Blacksmithing. You can't make money as a blacksmith. You want to bet? Tell that to the custom knives ma knife makers on Etsy and Amazon. Or, hey, you're a hobby woodworker. Maybe now you become a craftsman woodworker. Because one of the great things about a good portion of society moving toward tech is a good portion of that society has more money to spend on things like custom knives, custom furniture, that type of stuff or truly organic local food. I have not bought eggs from a store in six months. I go to the farm 15 minutes away where those lay eggs are laid every day and I pay $5 a dozen. You can't get good eggs for $5 a dozen at the store. They're eight bucks a dozen. And they probably came from Ohio, which means you're contributing to global warming because you're allowing your eggs to be shipped 12 states away. I got you thinking, don't I? No, it makes a lot of sense. I do the same thing. I mean, being in Texas, there are a lot of farms and, and things like that. So it, it's really, really easy. Yeah. I mean, if you're in Texas, you should never have to buy food or not food, but cattle at least, beef from a store, right? You know, we go to the store and you see choice meat, right? Choice level meat, USDA choice. And it's okay, but it's, I'm paying eight bucks a pound. But I just bought a cow for five bucks a pound, and the meat is much better. And I'm contributing to society by not contributing to climate change, greenhouse yeah, Supporting gases. the family farm as well. Yes, yeah, supporting the family farm as well. That's interesting. Just thinking about, you know, what do people do as, as industry changes and jobs go away? And there are a lot of opportunities, whether that is in trades and I think, you know, there's there's a shortage there. There's a shortage in a lot of different places. But just that the people can go and make a living doing something that they love, whether it is making those custom knives or furniture or taking a, a hobby that they really enjoy and making a living doing that. Well, it's interesting that you bring up trades because as a society, we have, for some reason, said that being a plumber or an electrician or a contractor is somehow blue collar and you want a white collar job, right? That white collar jobs come with prestige. No, it doesn't. It comes with being lazy, right? The fact that I can make money literally just by sitting on the phone and it's not a 900 number, right? I'm just telling people how to use software. These people, plumbers, contractors, electricians are out there making good money, good benefits. They actually help people. Right. Right. And they're doing the jobs literally that most people just don't want to do. So somehow that's bad. But I mean, plumbers, an independent plumber can make 120 bucks an hour. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. Right. And I don't particularly like plumbing, but I don't mind electrical. Right. I could go into it as an electrician. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that we need to rethink how we think about what is a good job right? A good job is a job that contributes first to your family and second to society. That's it, right? That's it. Nothing else, right? All the rest of it is just fluff. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's a, a change in mindset. 
Yes. And how we see things. But, it, <laughs> and this is funny because I'm a libertarian. So, or I should say a lean libertarian. Uh, so this actually goes to kind of against that. But people really, they need to stop listening to what the TV tells them or the website tells them. And they need to really start educating themselves so that they can formulate an opinion based on research and who they are. Not what, you know, no, you can't go be a public school teacher. They don't make any money, which is true. They don't make any money, okay? But if that's your passion, go for it, right? If you want to go live in a school bus full-time, go for it. As long as you're contributing to yourself and society in a positive way, everyone else needs to just, you know, shut the F up. And that just circles right back to Intrepidus Vita. That is exactly right. Fearless life. Fearless life. So living life on on your terms, not listening to to what society says you should do, but uh, but doing what you love and, and making a difference for people. Agree in an educated fashion, but absolutely right. Right, right. I, I, it, that's important because a lot of people they get their opinions from Facebook, they get their opinions from Twitter, they get their opinions from a blog, and they don't recognize that those blogs and social media and Facebook and all that. The reason all that stuff is free is because you're the cost of it. You're the profit of it, right? So it's in their best interest to always bend the truth just enough so that A, they're believable, but B, you'll click that link. And when you click that link, they make two cents. And if enough people click that link, they make 20,000, right? So absolutely never go into it blind. And trial and error is fine. That comes back to what we discussed before with, you know, being, don't be afraid to fail. I mean, when I built the bus, I had never built anything outside of a bookshelf. Wow. That is a pretty big undertaking then. It is. And I had to learn how to do it through trial and error. And I will tell you this, if you're not someone who works, you know, building couches and doors and bed frames and all of that, you will invent swear words as you go through this process. (laughs) But in the end, we ended up with essentially a rolling tiny home. That's pretty cool. So what is that the greatest lesson that you've learned uh, as an entrepreneur or building the bus or just throughout your career? So for me, and this will be different for everybody, of course, but for me, it was a realization that to be successful, you don't have to be the biggest, the baddest. You don't have to be number one. You don't have to grow your company to thousands or millions. You don't have to you know, take in VC, Right. Everyone kind of defines success differently. But for me, when I reached success, it was because I can wake up in the morning and I can say I have helped somebody. Not a single one of my employees has ever missed a paycheck. I have never missed a paycheck. We have no debt. We have no VC. Now we're responsible. We've got credit lines just in case and those types of things. But the success is I have raised children. I have and a wonderful ex-wife who has a great career, partially because of my help. I have a new partner that I've been with for a decade who we have a wonderful relationship. I pay all my bills. I have money going into retirement. I'm able to contribute to society and people individually. And I don't, there's no chasing at this point. I get to choose. I have gotten to a privilege where if I don't want to do business with you, I don't have to. And that is what success for me is, is the ability to live a fearless life. I don't, if the economy, t- like, here's an example. I live frugally. 
And I'm not saying everybody needs to, everyone's got their, their little hobbies. An example, you can kind of see back over here, a bookshelf and they're board games, but they're not like Monopoly. They're other types of board games, like Ticket to Ride and Five Tribes, things like that. So I collect those. So the, yeah, I spend more money on board games than I should. I'm not saying don't enjoy your life. Please love your life. But you are not a success if you're carrying $200,000 in student debt. And it's not my responsibility if you did that. That was your choice. You are a success if you pay that off without expecting somebody else to pay it off. And you work for it, right? So for me, it's really hard. It's actually, it just all comes back to contributing to society and not being a burden to others. Right? And that doesn't mean you won't need help sometimes. I mean, there's been plenty of songs. You know, Everyone's going to need a friend sometimes. Lean on me, that type of thing. And that is all true. But if you're moving forward and you're not worsening your life and you're not worsening someone else's life, this is where you, I start to sound like a libertarian, right? Then you are a success. Just because you can't afford a brand new F-150 Lightning at $80,000, that doesn't make you a failure. The fact that you recognize that you can't afford it and you're not going to try and spend $1,000 a month on a car payment, that makes you a success. That makes sense. Well, where can people learn more about you, more about Command Prompt, and in, in your podcast as well, more than a refresh? So the easiest way to find me is obviously via commandprompt.com, right? Because that is kind of the center of my universe. You can find out about more than a refresh, which you know, more than refresh is a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. And it's about learning and about and from people who are in the data fields. Uh, and you can get a link there. Intrepidus Vita is also on there. However, my quote-unquote personal, professional, independent blog is joshuadrake.me. And you can find things there about me as well. Awesome. And we will make sure and put all those links in the show notes so that you can go check those out and, uh, and learn more about uh, Joshua Drake, a.k.a. JD. That's right, JD. So. Really enjoyed our conversation today. I did too. I didn't know where it was going to go. You know, I wasn't exactly sure because it was more of a let's see how the conversation ends or follows. But I really do appreciate, you know, asking the questions and trying to answer them in a way that hopefully will help people. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. It was. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, JD. Thanks again to JD for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Learn more about JD, Command Prompt, and the Intrepidus Fida project at joshuadrake.me. As always, all links, highlights, and resources and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. Please subscribe or follow us at sassfuel.com. It's free. And share this episode with one other person. They will think that you are a genius because you found the show first. And, you know, it's helpful for me as well. So I would really appreciate that. Share it with just one person. You can share right from the sassfuel.com site. Super easy. Tune in next week for our conversation with Art Shake, founder and CEO of Circle It. This is an amazing conversation with a founder who has created a unique service that sends a message to the future. Intrigued? Art is a very unique individual with an app that you need and it will make your life easier and affect your family now and for generations to come. You know, before I met Art, I was doing this thing manually and had no idea a better way existed. And now I'm a user along with my entire family and even extended family. It is so, so good. You won't want to miss this one. 
So be sure and check it out next week. And until we meet again, enjoy the journey.